0: Making, making, making contact. Making
1: contact.
2: (laughs) This is
0: Making Contact. I'm Anita Johnson. Amid national outrage over the police killing of George Floyd in May of 2020 and other police shootings of black people, the movement to defund the police became a rallying cry to reimagine our approach to public safety.
3: This is a revolutionary moment, uh, and um, I'm really happy as a veteran uh, to be able to witness it, to be able to recognize that the work that uh, we may have done 50 years ago really has made a difference, um, and I think that uh, we're we're seeing developments and processes that we could never have really imagined. Years ago, when we we were talking about how to popularize abolition, it would have been impossible to predict that at one point there would be huge, massive demonstrations at a time of a global pandemic. They went out and protested against um, racism at their own peril, um, using slogans like defund the police.
0: That's Angela Y. Davis, She's a political activist, author, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and she co-founded Critical Resistance, an organization working to abolish the prison industrial complex. For more than 50 years, Davis has advocated for the abolition of prisons, casting the issue in human rights terms and urging a broader vision of justice. Davis's work is grounded in a feminist framework and global transnational lens. On December 1st, 2020, in conjunction with Haymarket Books and Study and Struggle. David spoke about the need to create a worldwide movement to shift away from harsh punitive policies and the manufactured need for police and prisons. The talk also included other scholars, such as Lorja Garcia-Pena, an activist and the co-founder of Freedom University Georgia. Medin Palos, a filmmaker, researcher, and an activist working for LGBTQ and citizenship rights in Italy. And Leti Volpe, a law professor at UC Berkeley. The conversation was moderated by Makani Thimba, a chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi. Again, Angela Davis.
3: I've been doing work that might be described as abolitionist since the 1970s. Uh, The uh, Attica uprising took place in 1971 uh, when I myself was uh, in, in jail and I, I uh, remember the call for evolution that came from the Attica brothers uh, struck me as uh, uh, explaining so much of what I had not been able to uh, explain or understand. Uh, uh, the historical process, for example, the connection between the putative abolition of slavery and Uh, what uh, needed to happen with respect to uh, prisons. Um, I think I've always been interested in processes that um, emphasize and popularize historical consciousness. Uh, I studied um, French literature and I studied philosophy, but always in historical contexts. And I say that because I think historical consciousness is what we lack in this country. There are white people who still think that because they or their immediate families were not directly involved in slavery, that they're completely exonerated, that they bear no responsibility. They have no idea what historical responsibility means. Uh, uh, Capitalism, especially capitalist ideology in its neoliberal form benefits from this historical amnesia um, because the temporality that capitalism urges is a perpetual present. Uh, It's one of the reasons we find ourselves trying to address problems now that should have been addressed over 150 years ago. And it's also, it seems to me, why we end up calling for reforms over and over and over and over again. If one looks at the history of incarceration and the history of policing, one discovers that there have been calls for reforms throughout the histories of these institutions. As a matter of fact, the calls for reforms have constituted a central element of the history of these institutions. And as such, um, have become the glue that has held these institutions together. And of course, Even as these reforms have been instituted, both incarceration and policing have only grown more racist, more repressive, more violent. Uh, And this is why um, I was so struck by the call for abolition, um, the radical alternative. And when I say radical, the etymological meaning of radical is root. So abolition allows us to get at the root of the problem. It enables us to escape from being trapped by the same framework and the same footprint. So uh, we don't look at policing and incarceration as discrete institutions that must perpetually remain at the core of our attempts to make human community. Um, So I see abolition as a Revolutionary perspective. It asks us to understand and resist not only the particular institution we're concerned with, and of course we're talking, we've we've talked about police and we've talked about prisons and educational institutions, the university, but it asks us to address all of the conditions and forces that enable the continued existence of the institution. So we won't simply add the adjective humane to the name of an institution that is so deeply flawed, so structurally racist, so profoundly influenced by heteropatriarchal ideologies that we would have to say, um, well, we know policing is racist, so let's struggle for a more humane racist policing Uh, We know incarceration is inherently class bias, inherently violent, so let's struggle for a more humane uh, class bias, a more humane violence, a more humane wall, a more humane ice. And so I've come to the conclusion, both as a result of my scholarly work and my activist work, is that we... We have to enlarge our analytical framework if we want to avoid being trapped on this treadmill of reform. We have to ask questions about connections and and relations, relationalities. In other words, we have to do a feminist uh, analysis. We, we don't ask the question, what can we do to make an institution that has already demonstrated that it can never fundamentally change... Uh, How do we make that institution change? But rather we ask what are the contextual conditions and surrounding social forces that need to shift in order to ensure that we don't need to rely on these institutions in order um, to survive and in order to flourish. Uh, Therefore, we need schools, not jails, but we don't need schools that that try to become jails, which is what we have now. And and I would say that this is this is what we have come to call an intersectional approach Uh, and the part played by feminism, um, anti-racist, anti-capitalist feminism is not only to ensure that we keep gender within our frame, but it is to ensure that our analysis is not lazy that we don't shy away from complexity, that we realize that abolition involves both the negative process of overturning and disestablishing, but also, and more importantly, the reconstructive process of creating something new, not just one new thing, but addressing all of the enabling um, conditions. Um, So I guess I would conclude by saying that, uh, and I I did a... um, webinar with Lenny not too long ago on abolition feminism uh, and, you know, the meaning of abolition feminism. I would end by saying that abolition needs feminism. It needs anti-racist, anti-capitalist feminism. um, uh, But feminism needs abolition, Uh, you know, otherwise it becomes the kind of carceral feminism that Lenny was talking about. And uh, I think that abolition has to be placed within an internationalist framework. Let's not only think about the U.S., but let's think about Brazil. Let's think about Palestine. Let's think about Europe. Let's think about um, Australia. Um, And with that, I think I'll
0: conclude. (laughs) Moderator Makani Thimba.
2: Well, Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. It's good to hear from each of you. Uh, I have a couple little questions. They're going to be a little different, I think, because from listening to everyone. And, um, I, I've been reflecting a lot on the fact that this is the 65th anniversary of the Bandung conference. And, um, and for, for many folks, a turning point, in understanding of themselves as international, um, you know, sort of, um, not the birth, but certainly an important milestone in how many of us thought about how our, um, movements were connected all these kinds of things and i also think about this question and this makes me think about something you brought up Lorja, in terms of these communities of rebellion mm-hmm. these this um idea of d- sort of debordering right and and resisting and and when i was listening to to angela and, and actually all of you talk about the ways in which um we are we continue to replicate, um these oppressive models even sometimes in the ways we organize um is people trying to translate like what does it mean to to organize from this place of freedom from liberation and so I was curious if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how you see these communities of rebellion like what does that look like and 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 that sort of process of of education or maybe uneducating you know (laughs) Educating um, to disrupt all that. Like, what does that look like,
0: Laura Garcia-Pena?
2: You know, um, I think
4: the, the, for me, I think the work is exactly how Angela was describing it. It has to do with building and with being able to and willing and having the both the fortitude, the amount of hoping that needs to happen. And, I'm, and when I say hoping, I'm not talking about your you, you know, sitting with a rosary and praying, but rather believing that the kind of work that you are putting energy into, it's going to actually create effective changes because otherwise, the, what is the point of doing the work we're doing? But I think for me, um, when it comes to learning, when it comes to creating communities that are, that are hopeful, that are feminist, interventions into uh, the world that we are choosing to create, not the one that we are inheriting it. It has everything to do with with community and with transnational community, with sitting with each other together. I think for those of us who are scholars and who are trained as scholars, we've been trained that to believe that, especially if you're a, a woman of color, that they can only be one of us that they can only be one of us in the room, that they can only be one of us in the classroom, that they can only be one of us teaching this particular subject. And that is how we've been socialized and that is how the institutions operate. And that is, this is how they maintain um, this this exclusion, this violence, because it, it's both oppressive and, and isolating. And I think um, in, in the classroom with students, that is replicated in these ideas of we found something in the archive and therefore you own it and now you own history and that legitimates you and i think that the the work that i'm that i'm hoping to do the work that i'm trying to do with my students and with my colleagues is to think about learning as communal think about learning as a process that can only happen if we all together put a little bit and think together and it's so, we, we all know this. We all know that we learn from each other. This is why we're here as a group, and this is not an individual lecture, because we know that we learn from each other, and we learn from bouncing off ideas. But somehow, our educational systems do not reward that. We reward the individual paper. We reward the individual book. We re- reward the individual intervention and the words and the, and the whatnot. And I think that one of, one of the main goals that we should have as educators is to not only abolish that idea but invite collaborations and invite unlikely collaborations um, of multiple people because this is how we learn but this is also how we can grow um, this is also how these are a very practical ways in which we can build this kind of transnational communities that we're striving to build we can't build those by staying in our own corners we have to talk to each other we have to find that space and that space needs to also be practical. We have to think about things like childcare and caring for the elderly and so on. If we don't have those resources, if we don't have that as part of what we're doing, then we, we cannot move forward.
0: That's Professor Lorja Garcia-Pena, and you're listening to Making Contact. What are your thoughts on abolition and transnational movement building? Write us at Contact at radioproject.org or join the conversation on social media. That's on Twitter at making underscore contact or on Instagram at making contact radio project all one word. The conversation we've been listening to was originally hosted by Haymarket Books and Study and Struggle. The talk explored how to build a global movement for abolition and the types of shared knowledge, strategies and organizing in an internationalist movement to abolish police and prisons. Now back to the conversation.
2: Letty, I, I have a, a question for you and I, as I was listening to you talk, and and, and it doesn't matter how many times you hear the story, you are never desensitized to the horror and the, just the, just the, the depth of all the, the things that, um, that this brings up. Um, and I know, um, as someone who's spent some time at the U.S.-Mexico border as an observer and and things like that. You just you just never ever get to the point where you're callous about that. And I appreciate you telling these stories. You also are a law professor, and you also think about policy, which is another way in which borders get created, right through the law, <laughs> right through um, and um, and and so we have these these places of enforcement, of terror, and all these things. And like you were talking about, sort of the bloodless version, right, that um, through policy. I wanted to to get you to talk a little bit more about that, Um, but but from an abolitionist perspective. So when you think about, like, here's the way we understand law right now, right? (laughs) And then... and then here's the way that we think about um, about law in this feminist abolitionist framework.
1: Um, that's such a fascinating question. Um, how to think about law in a feminist abolitionist framework when essentially the law enacts violence, right? So. Can the tools be used, right, to deconstruct uh, the master's house is the question. So many people go to law school because they're really interested in trying to change society. And um, one of the things I think that's really frustrating is people realize that the way that how legal changes have been traditionally tried to, to be accomplished don't necessarily tackle systemic questions or utopian visions or what would really be the kinds of abolitionist reimaginings, right? So, I mean, essentially law is set up as a process either of Band-Aid, right? Of trying to help individuals navigate a system and ensuring that this individual gets a particular benefit through providing these services, Or it's trying to challenge policies and practices, but it's within the confines of what is set up as the law, right? And what the law is is legislation that's created by some purportedly democratically elected body, right? Um, And we know all the ways in terms of voter disenfranchisement and gerrymandering and redistricting, and you know, so that. The, the way the system is set up is you have these purportedly representative bodies, which really are not representative bodies, right, which create these laws, and then you have a judiciary which is supposed to interpret them, and we know how the Trump administration has essentially packed the court with members of this group called the Federalist Society, right? We have the most reactionary judicial system in the United States that we've ever had, right? maybe going back to what people refer to as the Lochner era, which was basically this era of pure economic rights. Um, And we have um, the executive, which enforces the laws, right? And here in terms of the national scene, we have had this monster in office. Um, So it's very difficult to think about entering that path and trying to do something different. Um, What I think Um, Many people have done is to try to create alternative spaces and alternative ways of working, which are deeply holistic. They're community driven, where um, people say, I am a lawyer, I'm a lawyer for the community, the community will help me figure out what it is that needs to be done. I will not identify myself as working on X issue because that particular issue might not be one that this community articulates as most important to them. So the lawyer in some sense is serving uh, community organizing um, and where the legally trained person makes themselves available to try any kind of tactic, right? Whether it's filing something in a court or it's protesting with a sign or it's engaging in public shaming of uh, an official or, um, you know, it's, it's babysitting, right? So um, I'm reminded of work that a dear friend, Julie Sue, who's now the labor commissioner for the state of California did. Um, There was a large group of us who were representing about 70 People from Thailand who had been brought to the United States, they were working in a condition of indentured servitude, sewing garments for some of the nation's largest manufacturers and retailers. And once they were liberated from this enslavement, basically Julie, who's an attorney, helped people buy shampoo figured out this is how you use the public transit system to the extent it exists in Los Angeles. This is how you open a bank account, right? And these kinds of ways of dealing with people as people, as humans, right, that are very different from the traditional attorney-client relationship. Um, anyway, so I, I, I could go on, but I, I, I won't. And just say that there, there are a lot of really um, progressive, revolutionary groups oftentimes associated with the term rebellious lawyering or independent worker centers, which are doing this kind of work, uh, which are deeply important.
2: Well, thank you for that. And and also just want to acknowledge all of the folks who are out here thinking about this from an abolitionist framework who are coloring outside the lines. and um, And I know I wrote a book now 20 years ago, which is a textbook on community policy and just all the examples of when regular people get involved. So, and that turns me to Angela, who gets to close us out in a way. Um, So I was wondering if um, you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts about what is it that we should be thinking about now in terms of building this feminist, abolitionist, transnational, um, anti-capital, like all these things, this, this intersection. Um, like, what are some of the lessons that organizers should be reflecting on now as we're trying to build this work out?
3: Um, well, you know, first of all, this is really an exciting moment. And, uh, you know, as much pain and suffering as we are collectively experiencing in the world as a result of the pandemic and uh, the disparate impact on communities of color, poor communities. Uh, this is a revolutionary moment. Uh, um, so I would I guess I would say um, this so much I want to say, but uh, I think that I want to go back to the internationalist framing of this conversation and how important it is to um, create ties and recognize that the U.S. is not the only place where important work is happening. Uh, Even even those of us who are opposed to the um, systemic structures of racism, governments and so forth, we sometimes forget that we have not extricated ourselves from this sense that the US is the center of the world. And we therefore don't look towards other parts of the world for inspiration, for knowledge. Um, racist police crimes, uh, probably the country that has, that has experienced uh, more racist police um, violence than any other country is Brazil. Or we can even look at Nigeria and the the struggles that are unfolding against the, um, what is it called, the uh, special anti-robbery squad, SARS, uh, struggles in South Africa. Um, A young young man, a young boy, 16-year-old by the name of Nathan Julius was who had Down syndrome was killed by the police in Soweto uh, not long ago. And and so they're dealing with structural racism, even though all of the actors are black, even though the police are black, they're still dealing with a system uh, that uh, was created during the apartheid regime, but retains the structural elements of, of racism, even though all of the actors are black. Uh, and this is something that we should definitely learn from in this country because there's still those people who say, well, we need more black police, right? But that's what we know that that diversity, diversity doesn't fundamentally change the structures. If the structure remains the same, it's going to continue to do the uh, the, the, the violent and, and, and racist work it did before. So I think that uh, we, should, um, we should really emphasize the internationalist dimension of our work. I'm, since we've been talking so much about abolition and we're also talking about borders, uh, I think this is the time when we begin to imagine a planet where the nation state does not Constitute the primary form of human community uh, 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 that uh, uh, we can imagine ourselves as global citizens. Uh, we can imagine a world without borders, uh, uh, and if we if we imagine what we want, what we think we need, and then you know one day um, there's the possibility that it will be. Uh, Um, an important part of an agenda for change. Nobody ever imagined that abolition would help constitute agendas for change in our lifetimes. Uh, And I think that the work that is being done in um, Mississippi, I'm I'm so happy to be a part of this uh, study and struggle uh, uh, conversation. We need knowledge, we need struggle that uh, these are the formations that will uh, not only allow us to imagine a different future, but encourage us to do the work now that will definitely lead to change uh, tomorrow, whenever tomorrow comes.
0: That was Angela Y. Davis. You've been listening to movement building and transnational freedom struggles on Making Contact. Special thanks to John McDonald, Haymarket Books, and Study and Struggle. To hear the full conversation unedited, log on to Radioproject.org. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Sonia Green, Producers Monica Lopez, Salima Himarani, and Anita Johnson. The Web Coordinator is Sabine Blazin. I've been your host this week, Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.